Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask you to bless this study as we look in the book of Second, uh, First Timothy and that you will guide and lead. And for each person that's here, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In verse 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting to verse 5. First Timothy. Did I say Second Timothy again? I'm just having trouble. Maybe I want to go to Second Timothy for some reason. Is that what it is? Yeah, that was it. We'll, we'll put a we'll put a put a big spin on that. It was all the test. See if you're paying attention. All right, First Timothy chapter one, starting at verse five. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of the pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. So we want to look at this for a moment. Um, it starts out, now the end of the commandment is charity or love. That's another word for love. It's an old, old English word for love. And I just started thinking about the value of love. You know, the Bible talks about love so frequently, and this love is agape love, which if, if you talk to people, they'll tell you that uh, will mean unconditional love, and you know that I define that as objective love, your love that you have chosen, okay? And the end of the commandment is love. And this is kind of an interesting thought when we think about this, and I want to read a verse that many of you know, a chapter that many of you know, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called the love chapter. It's one of the greatest descriptions of godly love that exists. And verse 1 in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it is profiting me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envious not. Love vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeks not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity. And rejo but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. And I'm just going to, you know, And when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but when, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. God's picture of love is chosen love number one, objective love. You know, the world will teach us all about love in some ways. If you watch movies, TV, songs, whatever it might be, you hear about the world's definition of love. You see some beautiful person across the way, you fall madly deeply in love with them, and, and about a year or two later, you fall, fall out of love with them. <laughs> 
Okay, that's the world. That's the world's vision of love. Okay. And how many times, you know, we have such a high divorce rate in this country because people get married on that type of love. And then when the infatuation's all gone, you'll hear this, this term, I never loved you. And you know what? They're right. They never loved them. They were infatuated with them. They were in lust with them. God's definition of, lo of love is a chosen love. When God says he loves us, it's agape love. He chooses to love us. And you know the good news about that? It takes all the romanticness out of love. But you know what? God chooses to love us. The only way he's going to not love us is if he chooses not to love us. And you know what? God is not going to choose to not love us. And this is what he's telling us in Second, uh, First Timothy. He's telling us the end of the commandment is love. Why is the end of the commandment love? Because if we love people... We're going to obey the commandments. We're not going to be gossiping about them. We're not going to be using God's name in vain. We're not going to steal from them. We're not going to hurt people. You know, if we truly love one another, that does fulfill all of God's commandments. What Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and, and mind. The second commandment is to love your brother as yourself. And then he goes on further and tells us as Christians, we're to love our enemies. <laughs> now, it's pretty easy to love a brother. It's pretty easy to like uh, to love somebody you like. But how easy is it to choose to love somebody that you've got problems with, that you don't like? Yet this is what God's saying. To really, truly fulfill his commandments, love is what is at issue. Do we love one another? I read... 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it's a great picture of love, but you know the context of that chapter, and it's very rarely taught what that context is. It talks about spiritual gifts before it. It talks about spiritual gifts after it. I believe that love is a gift from God that we all have. Some people have more love than others, but love is a gift that God gives us if we are truly his child. If we are truly his children, he gives us love. And as it says, it doesn't mean that it allows evil or allows bad things to happen, but it endures. It endures. And we all know there are people in your life that try your patience, that are hard to love, that are hard to get along with. We all have them. We all, we all have certain people in our life. And I just want to cover some of the verses. I didn't, didn't want to cover all of them because we'd be here all day discovering love. But in John 13, 35, it says that all men will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. So I'm going to say that if you do not love other Christians especially, you need to look and see, are you one of his children? Are you one of his disciples? Love is something that needs to be expressed. And I'm going to tell you, love can be hard sometimes. It can be very hard to love people. And I'm going to tell you one other thing. If you don't know it already, love hurts. When you love somebody and they don't respond in a way that you would like them to, or even a godly way as a teacher or a pastor, when somebody, when I give out messages and people, and I watch somebody make the same mistake I just preached about that week or the next week, it's like, okay, God, I still love them, but man, this hurts. When I was young, I didn't care. I didn't love people enough to care. And God has taught me to care, and it breaks my heart when I see people do things that hurt God or go, that hurt themselves especially. Uh, you know, but we're to love one another, which shows that we're his disciple. 
John 15, 9 and through 10 tells us that the Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves the Father, we love him, and then wherefore we should love <laughs> the Father. Why? Because it is who indwells us. The love of God indwells us if we're his child and will come out of us. In Romans 5, verse 5, it says, the love of God is shed abroad or poured out. And you know, this is an amazing thing to me, and we've talked about this several times. God loved humans before we were created. Before the world was created, God loved us. And you know what? He loved each one of us in particular because he knew who he was going to create, who was going to be in existence before the whole world was created. And that's hard to imagine. You know, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, you know, uh, we're going to create man. Man's going to send Jesus. Will you, will you die for them to redeem them? And Jesus said, yes. Do you realize that at the moment Jesus said yes, everybody who was going to be saved was saved? We didn't even exist. <laughs> the world didn't exist. And yet he knew who was, who was going to be out there, who was going to get saved, who was not going to save, who was going to reject him, and had a plan. The love of God. Yeah. We sing a song, the love of God, you know, that if the ocean was filled with ink, the sky was a parchment, and the trees were all quills, and every man could write down, we'd still not be able to record the love of God. And I'm going to tell you, just when you begin to think you understand God's love, he's going to show you deeper aspects of his love. And when you see his faith and faithfulness in him, he's going to show you deeper things. The wonderful thing about God is anytime you think you know anything about God, he's going to show you that you don't really know much about him. Yeah. And that's an amazing thing. Studying for over 40 years, and I still don't know much about God. Do I know more than a lot of people? Yes, I know a lot, of more, lot more than a lot of people, but I don't know much about God. Because every time I think I know something about him, he gives me some new verse or some new situation in my life to teach me, here's how much I love. Here's how much I care. And I hope you are all in that same place where you, every time you think you know a little bit about God, he shows you the next depth, the next greater. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are deeper than our ways. He is so much above us. You know, he uses human words to describe himself to us, but the words fail. The words fail and describe God. And we need to be able to understand this, that nothing can understand God. We can't understand God. And you know what? I've said this before. It is a good thing that we can't understand God. Because if we could totally understand God, he would be too small. He wouldn't be God. If I could understand everything there was about God, there has to be something above God that is more important and, more, and bigger. I can't understand anything about God when it comes right down to it. He is so much bigger. They've used the picture of an ant trying to understand a human. You know, uh, the ant doesn't know where he's going. We can, we can see quite a ways where the ant's going, maybe. You know. And God had to become a human being to be able to identify with us. And this is something we just want to look at. Um, in Romans 8, 35 through 39, it says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Think about that for a moment. How many times have you felt separated from God's love? God says, Nothing can separate us. Now, we can think that we're separated. We can believe that we're separated, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
And he goes on to say, neither height, nor breadth, nor depth, nor length. Or, you know, he goes on to say, in any way, nothing can separate us from God's love. When you're attacked by Satan and Satan says, God doesn't love you anymore, you're so awful, you can't be loved by God, I would recommend learn, learn Romans 8, 35-39 and be able to tell Satan, you know, you're wrong. Nothing. Nothing. No matter what sin you have done, no matter what you've done in your life, you cannot be separated from the love of God. And I really want you to understand this because it is so important for us to understand nothing. Those who are going to be sent to hell, God still loves them. Even though he's going to have to give them what they've asked for, and that is to be sent to hell by the rejection of Jesus Christ. He's still going to love them. It's going to hurt him greatly to have to give them what they've asked for. God loves people. Now, when I hear people go, well, I can't come to church because God, God is going to crush me or the, or the roof will fall in or whatever. What? A bunch of baloney. And we need to be able to tell them, no, that's baloney. God loves them. God loves the most wicked person you can possibly imagine in all of history. God loves them. Great example is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not a very nice man, and yet he becomes what we would say a Christian, a believer in God, through the ministry of Daniel, and changes completely in his, in his lifestyle. And in his day, he would have been one of those go, Nebuchadnezzar, no way God would ever love him. You know, he beats people. He, he kills, he skins people alive. You know, he was brutal. Okay. The most evil person that you can even imagine ever in all of history, God loves. And if you can love them, he definitely loves us. Because I don't think anybody in this room is the most evil person in all of history. Now, some of us may be pretty bad, but none of us are that bad. First uh, Corinthians 18.1 says, love edifies. Galatians 5.13, liberty allows us to do things, but love serves one another. Do you realize that as Christians, we're not bound under the law, but because we are to love one another, we can bind ourselves to not do certain things that we could do? In 1 Corinthians, he said, you know, Paul said, you know, hey, you always want to go down and go buy meat from the, from the temple because it was offered to idols? There's no problem with it because they're just a block of stone. But if it offends your brother, don't do it. Because it's perfectly capable of doing it. There's nothing wrong with that meat that was a, you know, killed in front of a block of wood or a block of stone or a block of gold. He goes, it has no value. It has no, it has no importance. He goes, but if you have a brother who, who thinks that it's still, you know, a problem, don't do it in front of them. And this can go for almost anything that God doesn't specifically say is a sin. Okay? You can't murder, you can't kill, you can't commit adultery, you can't commit fornication. Those are sins. But if you are somebody who can drink alcohol and not get drunk, there's no verse that says you should not drink. There's lots of verses that say don't, drunk, don't get drunk. They call drink, uh, being drunk a sin. Okay? So you have liberty to be able to drink. Now, I don't have liberty to drink because I don't want to offend and draw anybody down if they saw, well, pastor's drinking. I don't want to drink. I've never wanted to drink and have no desire to. But if somebody does, it's between them and God. But be very careful that you don't drink in front of somebody who is a brother or a sister who has a problem with it 
That's not ministering love to them. Yeah. Now, if you do it and you didn't know it was a problem, that's one thing you need to work on. But, but be careful about your liberty with God. Liberty with God because love should override our liberty. Our love to not harm one another, to edify one another, is what's important. And then in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, it says, Love covers a multitude of sins. This wouldn't be the last one I mentioned. i got others in there I could mention. But love covers a multitude of sins. How many times has somebody done something that has just made you angry and you wanted to separate completely from them? We've all had that problem in our life at some point. And true love covers the sin. It doesn't say the sin is okay. It does not say it's, it was good. It covers the sin and doesn't repeat it. Just as God does with our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, he covers our sins. God never says our sins are good. He never says they're okay. He never says they're justified. He says, I've covered them with the blood of Christ. And he forgets them. You know, oh, do we need to remember that God forgets our sins. In the Truth Project the other day, we were listening to Del Tackett, and he, and he made a quote that I think is attributed to somebody else, but I've only heard him say it. So many times we remember the things we're supposed to forget and forget the things we're supposed to remember. Now, we're supposed to remember how much God loves us and loves others and forget what's done wrong. And yet, so often, we forget all, we remember all the things that have been done against us and forget about God's love. We need to really flip it around and get away from the world's way of thinking and into God's way of thinking. How can you love another person if all you want to do is hold all your anger and bitterness against them? You can't. You can't fellowship with them. You can't forgive them. You can't be around them without this love. And love is the final part of the commandments here. And this is what he's saying. The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, an unfeigned heart. And this part is very important because sometimes you teach these truths to people, and they go out and they try to use them as a manipulation tool to get somebody to act a certain way. Okay, I'm going to love you and forgive you and all these other things, but I'm doing it only so that you're going to really like me and be hanging around me. Okay, if that's your reason for doing it, that's not a pure heart. Okay, and you know what? People know the difference. They know the difference real quick. Uh, if you've ever been around somebody in the, in the public help desk at some place and you can tell they don't like their job, they're saying all the right words, they're, they're acting the right way. But you just know that you know, if they had a chance, they would be cursing you out and, and ripping you to shreds. And you're going, you know, and you don't, they're saying all the right things that should make you feel good. But you don't end up feeling good because you know they don't care. It's not real to them. Don't try to use God's love and his forgiveness as a tool to try to get somebody to do something. Don't use these as a tool to try to get somebody to come to Christ. If you don't really mean it, you're better off just saying, I don't like you. <laughs> now, that's not a very Christian thing to do, and it's not the godly thing to do. And you need to be at that point praying that God teaches you to love. <laughs> but to try to pretend to say to somebody, I love you, and, and your voice and, and attitude is telling me I really hate you, <laughs> is not going to work. It all has to be done from un feigned heart, pure heart, 
and of a good conscience and of a faith unfeigned. You know, God wants to change us. I've heard many people go, well, people just have to accept me for who I am. And you know what? That is a true statement in the moment. But a month from now, a year from now, you know, three years from now, if you're still saying the same thing about the same problems, you've got the problem. Okay, you've got the problem at that point because you're not growing in Christ. And this is something that is very important for us. Are we growing in Christ? Now, we are all going to have some problems we've had for decades. But we should also be looking at it and saying, oh, look what God has done here. How much I've grown here. How much I've grown here. How much I've grown here. And when we see something that's really old and has not had much movement, we probably should go on our knees before God and say, God, help me in this area of my life. I need to grow. I need you to change me in this area. And then get ready for the testing when you make that prayer. Get ready for the testing if you don't make that prayer. Because God's going to test you in an area that you need to grow in. Be ready. We've shared many times, God will test you in whatever it is. You need to be more loving, he's going to put people in your life that are hard to love. You need to be more forgiving, he's going to put people in your life that's going to need to be forgiven. You need more of whatever. He's going to put people and situations in your life to be able to develop that area of your life. And you know what? I've got really bad news for you. It doesn't stop until you end up in heaven. <laughs> and the tests only get harder as you pass each test. But if each pass test, it also is easier because it's not, it's just the next step up. Verse 6, from that, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain janglings. Oh, this is kind of an interesting thing. How many people know a Christian or know somebody who doesn't seem to believe the word of God? And everything they say seems to be vain and empty. You know, they, they'll say something and you just know that they don't mean it. You, you can hear them sometimes on even the TV evangelists and stuff. Many of them do vain janglings. Sometimes even on the radio, we'll hear people with vain janglings. They teach things that have nothing to do with the word of God. Nothing to do with God. And we want to be so careful about that. You know, it's been said that if you have nothing to say, don't say anything, <laughs> which is a good piece of advice. I know some people that just have to have the last word on everything. It doesn't matter what's said. They, they have to have the last word. I, I have known people who had to be right even when they were wrong. You know, uh, my grandmother could argue on anything, on any topic, and she was right. Whether she knew anything about the topic or not, didn't matter, but we had to love her, you know, because that was who she was. You know, we want to be careful because God will put those people in our lives and say, are you going to love somebody? Some of those people are hard to love. Some people who always are going the wrong direction are going to be hard to love. Speakers and teachers, vain janglings, empty, void speech. You know, uh, empty disputers is one of the ones it has in there. Empty talkers. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anybody raised this, but you know, maybe you're one of these people that have to have comments about everything and end up finding out when you get done, wow, why did I ever say those things? You start out on a godly topic, and then you end up often in right field somewhere, not even on the ballpark anymore. <laughs> and you're going, wow, where did all that come from? We need to watch our, watch our tongues. 
James says anybody who can control, control their tongue is a perfect person, and we all have problems with it, all of us. How easy is it to get caught up in gossip? You start just sharing a need for somebody and where they're at, and then you end up gossiping about, about the need. You know, and we'll go, you know, Christians are really good about this. I have a prayer need for you. Sister so-and-so is really having a problem. She, her kids are misbehaving, and this is happening, and she's having an affair with the neighbor, and, you know, and she's getting ready to be fired from her job, but we really need to pray for her. Okay, did I really need to know all that stuff to pray for her? Absolutely not. She has a lot of problems. Okay, God knows her problems. But, you know, in Christian circles, we hide our, our gossip and prayer requests frequently. You know, or you just really need to know this so you can pray about them. No, I don't need to know anything about what they're doing to pray for them. Because the one I'm praying to knows everything. God, so-and-so is having a really big problems, and I don't know all the details, but you do help them. We need to be very careful in this, that we keep our words accountable. Because we're told that when we stand at the Bema seat, we're going to be accountable for every idle word we say. Now, for some people, that's not too hard to deal because they don't say very much. For some people, oh, man, they've got a lot of idle words that they're going to have to be accountable for. We need to be careful. We need to be careful and not fall into this vain jangling. I, I love that, <laughs> the, the, this word, the vain janglings. And then the last one, the verse for the day, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. How many people, how many times have you listened to something on TV or the radio or maybe some church where the pastor says something that has nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with anything godly, they know nothing of what they say and affirm. We need to be careful of that when we're sharing with other people. But you know what? In one sense, as a Christian, as a body, we need to share with each other what we're learning for if no other reason so that other people can go, well, I'm not so sure that that's what the Bible says in that situation. And anybody who's uh, taught in there or commented a lot of times, sometimes I'll ask you, where does it say that? Where does it say that? Tell me. Because if it doesn't ring true to my ears, I want to know where you got it from. And if you're a teacher, I'll probably do it to you anyway just to see if you know what you're talking about in the first place because of this very verse. Are you aware of what you're trying to teach? Because it is so easy to teach something that is not from the Bible. Every one of us has heard the love of money is the root of evil. Uh, money is the root of evil, right? Or, you know, that's not what the Bible says, and I had to say it the right way because it's just so stuck in my brain. But you know, you go to many churches and they'll tell you money is, is evil or money is the root of evil. No, it says the love of money is the root of evil. In America, a great, great statement that many people think are in the Bible, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's an Americanism that's not in the Bible. You know, but there's so many things out there that we think are in the Bible that aren't there. Now, it is good to be clean. I'm not going to say it's bad to be clean, but don't try to believe that it's what it says in the Bible. Be careful when we're instructing. And many times these things that we get come to us from when we were a young child in Sunday school and got some Sunday school teacher who shouldn't have been teaching Sunday school teaching us things that weren't godly. You know, the saddest thing that happens in most churches 
is they'll take anybody who's, who is saved, isn't saved, uh, but is willing to work with the kids and say, go work with the kids. The really sad thing is that most of the people want to teach adults and they should be teaching the children. If they're good enough and think they're good enough to teach adults, they should be teaching children so they get a grounding in God's word. And I've been a strong opponent of, of just putting anybody in classes all my life, not just, not just here, but all my life. I've been a Sunday school director in many, in many churches, and I go, we need the best teachers we have for children. Because if you teach a child something, they're going to remember it the rest of their life. You teach them wrong, they're going to remember that the rest of their life. Until they get maybe get very fortunate to have a really good teacher somewhere down the road that says, this is what the Bible says, and then all of a sudden they've got to unlearn something they've believed for decades possibly. And go, oh, <laughs> wow, you know, this so-and-so in Sunday school taught me this when I was in, in second grade, and it's wrong. How easy is it to be taught wrong in the Word of God? Which is why I tell everybody, I want good Bereans in this church. I want people going in the Word of God and checking out what I teach because I can teach something. I've been in church a long time, and I've been studying for a long time, but it is quite easy that there's something in my brain that some third or fourth grade teacher put in there before I knew how to study that is still floating around that hasn't been corrected. Now, I'm pretty deep in the Word, and I don't know that there's anything in there, but you know what? I wouldn't know until God reveals it to me from the Word. Or I'm listening to some speaker on the radio saying this, and I'm going, oh, I better look into this because I don't know that what he just said is true. Be good Bereans. I, I oftentimes will get, when I'm driving around with my radio on to these speakers, you know, grab a piece of paper and write something they say to go verify it and check it out. Very important for us to be able to do this because many desire to be teachers who shouldn't ought to be teachers. James has got a critical verse in James 3.1 that says, many of you ought not to be teachers for the judgment is greater to the teacher. It is important for us because why is the judgment greater for the teacher? Because they lead people astray. Now that doesn't mean that the person who's been led astray is off the hook. They should have been a good Berean checking out what they were being taught. But the person who teaches incorrectly has to answer to God for the lives that have been damaged as well. It's critical. And I'm not trying to scare anybody who from being a teacher. Just be sure that you do due diligence to study. Know what it is you're teaching. Know what it is you're instructing. And all of us have been have children or grandchildren. You're a teacher. If you're going to do it godly, you're a teacher. And you need to be reaching out to them, but know what you're teaching them. Make sure that it's biblical. Make sure you're a good, godly example to them because it is so needful. I've been so burdened these last probably a couple years trying to figure out how the church can help individuals that are lost in their lostness. You know, the ultimate fulfilling of love is to reach out to people who need God in a way that they need to be reached. We all know people who don't know what it means to be a, a husband or a wife. Why? Because for almost 50 years we have not had very strong families with good husband and wife models. There have been a handful, but they're getting fewer and fewer with every generation. How many of these parents that don't know how to be a mother or father? Why? Because for 50 years they have not seen a good, strong mother and father in their life. 
We're told how to be husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, friends. We need to be taking God's word and pouring into people's lives, discipling them, helping them. We have the answers. Are we pouring out to people? Are we going, oh, they're just so bad. You know, their whole family is messed up. Of course their family's messed up. You know, they have never seen a godly family in many cases. One of the greatest things I like about being in a church is how many people you meet that have been married 30, 40, 50 years, 60 years. Okay? When, when you tell somebody, you know, when I tell somebody I've been married for over 30 years at the, you know, around the prison or work, they go, oh, wow, that's really a long time ago. No, I'm just getting started. I'm comparing, my, I'm comparing our, our marriage to the people that I look at and say, 50, 60 years. You know, because they're honoring God and, and following God's rules. We have a generation and multiple generations that don't know what it means to be fathers, mothers, husbands, wives. Good workers. <laughs> and the Bible has plenty to say about being a good worker. You know, the greatest thing about the Word of God is it touches every aspect of life if we will let it. It is not something we just come to church for one hour a week and study and say, okay, great, I got a lot of good knowledge. God says, apply it to your life. You know, as workers, and I know most of our people are retired age, but you know, some people on the internet aren't. But as workers, we should be the best workers in the job. Period. Because God says we're working for him, even though somebody else is paying us. We're working as unto him. We should be the best worker. I've been in jobs where I go on break, and people are on break when I go on break. I leave for break, and they're still on break. And I'm going, okay, you know, I'm going to be a good example. I'm going to work for God, and I'm going to work hard during the break, when I'm off break. Are we good workers? Are we good mothers, fathers, husbands, and wives? Are we doing things God's way and saying, I'm going to apply God's word and I'm going to share it with others? When you have children, disciple your children. Teach them God's word. When you have grandchildren, it's a second opportunity. If you didn't do it right the first time, you got a second opportunity. If you got great-grandchildren, you've got a third opportunity to go get them. Yeah. And there's the people that come into our lives from all around. You know, all around us that we can be able to reach out and say, I don't know if I can help you very much, but let me share with you what God has shown me. Let me show you what God has shown me about being whatever it is you need to help them share. Being mentors, being disciplers of these people. Because if the church doesn't stop this downward slide, it's not going to stop. It's only going to get worse. And there is a great need for the church to step into people's lives and say, I want to teach you what God says. I want to teach you what God wants you to do if you will allow it and be able to bring them to Christ and get them to change. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask you to help us to love one another first off. And Lord, teach us to love others as we go forward and from here, and that you will help us to reach out with that love. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.